0: to note up episode number I don't actually know your guess is as good as mine actually your guess is probably better than mine because you are probably looking at the note up webpage or the title of this podcast or something like that which has the episode number right there so once again dear listener we see that you are smarter than me other people who are smarter than me also include our three guests today and they are Denise Cooper of PayPal Denise can you
1: tell us a little about yourself Hi there. Thanks for having me. So I've been at PayPal for about two and a half years. I've been involved in technology for more than 25 years and in open source since the term was coined. And I'm known as the open source diva by some people because I was the first corporate open source officer for Sun Microsystems. I was also the CTO of Wikipedia and I am the first chairperson of the Node.js Foundation.
0: Thank you so much for being here today. We also have Bert Belder. Bert, who are you?
2: Yeah, so my name is Bert, and I have been a nerd for a very long time, but I think I should start with, I have been a Node.js core contributor since two, 2010, project was very young at the time, I uh, started porting it to Windows and creating LibUV, which is now a very important part of the internals of Node, and even today I'm still a CTC member, although on the verge of retirement. Early. 2013, I was also the founder of a startup called Strongloop, who made APIs, and API solution for Node.js. That company later got acquired by IBM. It happened late last year. So since then, I've been working there, being involved with various parts of Node and platform, programming platform strategy.
0: Cool. And last but not least, Michael
3: Rogers. Hi, I'm Michael. I... I made requests, um, and I've been working with Node for a very long time, and now I basically just you know, keep the Node foundation running as the community manager, and that's me.
0: Michael might also jump in as host if I flounder, because he hosts this podcast sometimes. Spoiler alert, I will flounder. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I'm Rich Trott, and the trivia note I'm going to apply about myself is that despite being not very smart as we've already ascertained, I do most of the onboarding of Node.js project collaborators nowadays. So I bring that up just because that allows me to say, yay, community, which is what this show is all about. We're going to talk today about why huge tech companies like IBM and PayPal are investing not just in Node.js, but specifically in the Node.js community. More after this word from our sponsor DigitalOcean.
3: DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. Scale your infrastructure using advanced features like floating IPs for high availability, private networking, and API access for automated deployments. DigitalOcean is the fastest growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. Visit DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code NOTEUP on the billing page for a $10 credit to get started today.
0: Welcome back to NOTEUP. I am so happy to be recording this podcast because I'm using a new microphone. Does it sound better than previous episodes? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm, I'm stoked about the new microphone. So there you go. So we're going to start off talking about like why is the Node.js community something that companies like IBM and PayPal and other very large companies that we're going to list off later on are investing in? Like, what do IBM and PayPal get out of it? Why is it important to them? And I'm going to start with Denise.
1: Well, you know, PayPal's talked about this quite a bit. They recruited a guy from Netflix named Bill Scott, and Bill was a design-end guy, so kind of a front-end guy. And he came into the company with the idea of using Node and generally modernizing how PayPal was doing its front-ending. And at the time, they were building everything in Java. There was a lot of pushback inside the company because it was something new, and there was fear, you know, fear of the unknown. But he set up a small team of engineers, like five engineers, and had them implementing the same thing, the same stories that the people that were doing the Java front end were working on, but of course they got everything done so much more quickly. He did a masterful job of managing the political pushback. Meanwhile he created a groundswell of engineering interest in Node, and people started begging to be allowed to use Node. And then he was able to prove to the company that not only could he get to to market faster, but if we, as a company, came out and supported the community and started giving back things that we had built in order to make node scale out to our transaction scale, that it would be easier for us to hire additional node people. And that proved to be true. And then he also was able to successfully prove to the company that learning Node and and coming up to speed on, on front ending for PayPal in Node was happening much faster. The onboarding was much faster because it was an open source project that was, you know, well documented and you could learn everything you needed to. And you could go shopping for extensions that you wanted and, and generally come up to speed much more quickly. And so those were the three big wins for PayPal, the Kraken project, which was our our. Donation back to the community is how I got involved in PayPal actually. They they used me as a consultant to help them get a good outcome for that open source project and then decided that it'd be interesting to have me come into the company and see what else I could change. And we'll talk about that somewhere later.
0: Cool. Bill Scott has done some great talks about the story that you alluded to. And maybe we'll put a YouTube link in the show notes if we remember. But let's let's turn to Bert for a second. During the last note up Brian Laroe cited IBM as this company that is kind of the an, an unsung hero of so many open source projects, where they uh, keep things going. And I kind of feel like I kind of feel like outside of a few core people, they're not they may not be as appreciated for their role in Node community as they perhaps ought to be. So let's let's talk about why they do all that.
2: It's interesting that you bring it up. Like that was one of the major surprises when we got acquired by ibm is that you know i i in myself didn't think of ibm as a big investor in open source and it turned out to be totally the opposite like they're involved in everything the part of the reason why you don't see much of that is because like what ibm ibm's role is in in those projects so unlike PayPal, for example, we don't have to build anything ourselves with Node.js in, a, in order to appreciate it. Like IBM, much more follows what their customers want to do, and you know, as as it recognized that there's a, a lot of interest in Node.js, not just from you know a group of enthusiasts, but also like from the larger engineering community and you know from developers within the enterprise. IBM knew that it had to be able to support those customers and like not pretend the world was all you know whatever the last greatest thing was but also to be able to use the current greatest thing and so what IBM does when it comes in is a lot of the the groundwork I would say to make it usable for the enterprise which means there's you know legal obligations that it needs to meet that you know small shops or hobbyists don't really care about much and also a lot of I would say engineering hygiene you know like having a a good predictable pace in development making sure things are secure they're well tested they can run on a mainframe which is you know something that's fairly specific for what ibm does with node.js and so those things are not typically the things that excite the developer community too much but they're extremely important to make it available to our customer base there's another thing i think which is IBM just believes in open source. It sounds maybe a little like cheeky, but really, if you look at the, the things they're investing in they're you know if if they're not open source they're like they frown upon it you know and and that also means that a lot of things that IBM you know it, initiates itself, they will very quickly try to publicize like make open so think about like for example, Hyperledger, which is you know another shape of bitcoin or let's think about open whisk for example that's like amazon lambda basically but open and like you can get the source code if you want to those those kinds of things ibm just does because it believes that the things that they should do should ideally be interoperable they should you know have a little bit more interest than just from their own employees so i hope that answers the question
3: that's, that's really good. I think that there's like a, an interesting kind of distinction here too between the two companies where PayPal is like a, a really heavy user of Node.js and it's really kind of transformed their, their organization and so that's why they're investing. And then IBM, you know, is really in the business of providing a lot of services for other businesses, right? And so as those businesses have invested in Node.js and have, have had a similar story to PayPal, IBM has also invested and really like come to the table as a service provider there.
2: Yeah, Exactly.
0: I wanna go back to what Bert said about the types of things that I that IBM hires people to work on in Node because like like making sure stuff works on a mainframe and things like that. Because I find it interesting that IBM does a ton of the of of the boring work and I mean I mean, you know, the really boring, tedious, but super important stuff in a lot of ways. And the people they have doing it don't find it boring. They kind of love it. Which then makes other people love it as well. And it kind of has this like like contagious positive effect on 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 the community providing stability in really odd corners of the project. And this really isn't a question, but maybe someone wants to respond to that in some fashion.
1: Well, that, that virtuous circle is why open source one. Because uh, it creates its own excitement. You know, it started, we, we, you'll see a lot of the early documentation, um, like what Eric Raymond wrote, talks about scratching your own itch and many eyes make small work and all that stuff. But there's also a, a lovely viral effect because people who, whose day work is assigned find that, you know, working in an open source way is actually a whole lot more fun. And and it reconnects them with their original love of, of the work. And then when you start getting a really interesting community together, like the Node community is particularly interesting. There's a lot of innovation going on in like the Internet of Things space that makes for, you know, great conversations with other community members. It's infectious and, and you get sucked in.
2: Yeah, I think there's also, I mean, uh, in particular, I think the people that work or that do those difficult things in the Node community, like it, it's people's pride. Like the, it's something that IBM also has to do when they write their own software. And so these people come into the Node.js community and they're like, well, what needs to be done here? That's this. And hey, this is what we're good at. You know what I mean? I don't think you will easily find IBM, you know, inventing some crazy new API that makes everything very different in node.js but like they feel I think the pride of taking this very promising piece of software that already works very well and like you know just solidifying it you know in those areas where they feel it's important. but I mean I, I personally are actually not like that like I am um, I don't enjoy it that much so it's good that we have a good diverse set of people at IBM for sure.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I think the like that idea of competencies, right? Like, if you're organizationally good at something, it's it's nice to like share that, and also like somewhat rewarding. You know, the mainframe example is sort of like it, it's it's interesting, but but also, I mean, who else but IBM really cares about supporting on mainframes, right? Like, it's it's a little bit more like of their interest, and so yeah, they're going to do it. But there's stuff like you know. It, IBM is heavily involved in the LTS working group. And that's like, that's beneficial to everybody using Node.js in a production environment. IBM's just particularly good at that and, you know, wants to provide resources to stabilizing and, and checking commits. And another one that I found really interesting is the benchmarking working group, because there's, there's a team at IBM that has been, you know, doing benchmarking work and performance-based work on VMs for a very, very long time. And now it's like, oh, there's a new VM that you get to sort of benchmark and, and put all this kind of infrastructure around. And so there's a lot of relevant experience Experience that you're kind of bringing to the table, and it's hugely beneficial to everybody in the community.
2: Yeah, I wish we could have Michael Dawson here because he, is, he leads all that work. <laughs> so yeah, yeah,
3: be better than me, I guess. Heavily involved in Node. He's on the CTC. So, Maybe we'll, we'll do a future episode about benchmarking.
1: But all of this is really about why it's a good thing. It's a virtuous thing for open source projects to have a mix of involvement, both individuals and companies. There was a time, again, when open source was sort of thought to be the the Refusenik crowd and, and it was, you know, individuals and maybe they were working together on a project, but they were all hobbyists. But it's for a long time been true now that most people that work on open source get paid to work on it and not always to work on the project that they're having the most fun with, but they're being paid one way or another to be involved. And that professionalism that they bring and the, the sort of, you know, production deployment values and some of that other stuff it has been really beneficial to open source overall and made it the tooling of choice now. It's where people go shopping for the pieces they need when they're building something new.
0: Denise keeps saying things that are that I just I just keep like, yeah, that's that's like kind of a thought I half had at one point, And it's just like so much better put and more completely thought out and has angles to it. I would have never considered. And I'm just kind of amazed. You should just keep pontificating on really anything and we'll all just shut up and listen. But actually, I'm going to ask a question to Michael, which is, do you want to add anything about anyone else who's doing stuff like this with the foundation and the community and, and why they're doing it?
3: Sure. Yeah, I mean, Node Sources is, is pretty well known for putting similar resources and focusing on some of the enterprise stuff. A bunch of other companies. I'm actually, if I try to name them all, I'm I'm not gonna remember all of them and then that's going to upset people. So I think that we should probably just leave it there and that you should look at the contributor list and where they work to see who is investing. But I think it, it's also a good its a good time to sort of take a slight step back from that because most of the individual contributors who work on Node.js are not like employed full time by a company to do that, right? Most of the people are actually, you know, coming for for quick bursts of time. A lot of the, the sort of upper level kind of maintenance and merging of all that stuff and keeping the project together really comes from these, you know, Know, paid full-time people from all these different companies. And like Denise said, having a diversity of of those companies and of those individuals like ensures that we're not optimizing for, you know, one particular use case or one particular company.
0: So, let's talk about how the foundation got started and how the foundation fosters community and all those wonderful things.
1: Sure. Well, from my perspective, what happened first was Michael and I ran into each other at a conference. And he had questions about copyright and copyright aggregation, because the trademark owner of, of Node was doing some interesting things around copyright. And it wasn't clear that it was following community will. And
3: no, 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 it set the record straight on that. It, it wasn't about that. It was about the CLA, remember? Yeah, um, yeah, but that a- is
1: copyright ag- aggregation. CLA is the vehicle by which that happens.
3: Oh, okay, okay. I just, uh, yeah, that didn't have anything to do with them being the trademark holder necessarily. It no, was no, just, no, uh, I'm just saying yeah, yeah, that they okay, were doing
1: okay. interesting things. They, 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 As the trademark holder and the copyright holder, they had the right to do some interesting things. And one of the things they did was they sort of canceled the use of copyright aggregation. And they did that thinking that it would make the community happy. And they read that... Partly wrong. The community did want to be done with having to go get their lawyers to sign a CLA in the way that Apache contrib- contributors have to do, but they didn't necessarily understand fully the implications, which is why he was asking me. So I we talked a bit about copyright, and towards the end of that talk, he asked me if I would come to a meeting <laughs> that was being convened by IBM. Was sort of a cabal meeting. It had pretty much all the major players in Node. It, it, by, by when I say major players, I mean companies that were making money with Node. So Node Source, um, Strong Loop. The folks from npm were there. The, you know, just sort of the people like that,
3: and 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 the committers as well. Like and all of the so, yeah, the committers key committers. Were, were that's true. Well.
1: The whole the sort of technical committee was there, and then I was there as sort of an invited guest. And I ran into my friend Todd Moore there, and Todd and I have been in the game for a, a while now, and and we run into each other on various projects because, as Bert said earlier, IBM invests in pretty much everything and it's a good thing they do because a lot of sometimes they're the only investor in things so they were concerned because they saw a growing disconnect between the the people that were running the node project in other words the benevolent dictators and what everybody else wanted to do and I had heard a little bit about it, about this at PayPal, just frustration about getting changes into Core, if they ever wanted to get changes into Core, and sort of how much of a, of a difficult process that was. So I was curious. I also have, for many years, helped companies figure out open source. So I volunteered my services to try to talk to the Benevolent Dictator Company and see if I couldn't help them understand why it was probably time for Node to change models. And so I started meeting regularly with the new C, then new CEO of Joyent, you know, maybe every couple of weeks for a good while, six, eight months before the IOJS fork happened. And during that time, mostly what I was doing was trying to help him understand why companies engage in open source, how they engage in open source, uh, what the best next future for Node would be if it was going to shift models away from benevolent dictatorship. The fork happened, which was, we were already in negotiations to look at a foundation, but they were definitely taking their time. It was not moving very quickly. And the engineers, the committers, got tired of waiting, and they basically created a fork. Maybe Michael should pick the story up at this point, because from my point of view, the articulation of what the community actually wanted was really important to getting the right outcome so maybe you want to talk about that. So before, for a
0: before Michael does that, I, I need to interject <laughs> something which is ho- holy shit I had no idea Denise was that heavily involved in the foundation that early and it's super nice to have that piece of history documented. This is this is the first time I've dropped profanity on a note up episode. <laughs> Lots of other folks have, but this is a first for me. That's how much I didn't know all that stuff you were talking about. Okay, go Michael.
3: Denise is, is actually involved in the creation of like um, many foundations, of which um, she probably doesn't get official credit for, including all the way back to, I think, the Mozilla Foundation, right? So, yeah,
1: that's true. And
3: OSI and Apache. So <laughs> this, is, this is by no means like a new thing for Denise.
0: Um, no, no, I just didn't know that it was part of the Node Foundation story. That's all right. right.
3: Yeah. To sort of bring this back to corporations and enterprises wanting to get involved in open source i think like it's it's important to just note like some of the motivations that companies and enterprises had in like trying to do a foundation right so one of the one of the big ones is that enterprises right now that are especially doing cloud stuff they bought a solution 10 years ago that they now have to get rid of and they have to like buy it. They have to essentially buy some new stuff. And they're not buying proprietary solutions from a big vendor like they used to because that's what's kind of holding them back now. So you're seeing like big companies hugely investing in open stacks, right? fully open source cloud stacks so that they're not locked into a particular proprietary stack again. And that includes, you know, proprietary open source stacks, if, if, that's a, if that's a thing, if that's a word that we can use, right? I mean, a lot of people are, are not super happy with Java right now, because, even though that's an open source project, but there was this whole Oracle lawsuit, you might've seen about it in the news, people are very worried. So one of the reasons why people wanted to see Node, an open source platform come out of just a single company into a foundation was so that it would be somewhere that they knew was going to last indefinitely, that a lot of different companies and different enterprises could all invest in, right? It, it just makes them, feel warm and fuzzy and feel like there's going to be a stable foundation for decades that they're investing in by adopting this technology and investing in this technology. So that was some of the motivation there, just to try to tie it back into the actual topic of what we're talking about here. Now to come to the IJS fork in the foundation, you know, the people that you know, did the early governance work? Were the early contributors to the IOJS fork were involved in the governance conversations, trying to get things into a foundation? But ultimately, you know, felt like you know they had ideas about governance that had not entirely been tested yet, and so the best way to test those out was to do them in public in a project, see if those methods of governance work for a project, and then be able to print, present that to joint to a foundation and say, Hey, look, this is a model that works. And so, you know, when, when joint did announce the foundation and when IOJS eventually came in, we didn't just have like ideas about a governance model and contributors to to the project, but we actually had like a a history of success in getting people to the table in order to participate with that model. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, we ended up, you know, really being able to combine a lot of the the benefits of Node.js and a lot of the investment that, that Joian had did, and all of this new governance work that IOJS was able to do. Bert, you were you were a contributor on The Fork as well. I think that you were probably one of the more skeptical people of like these new ideas about governance and, and stuff like that and liberal contribution agreement. So I'm, I'm curious about your take, You know, being involved in it and seeing it kind of take off and, and new contributors
2: come to bear. The thing I was most skeptical about is if it would actually lead to better software. It was clear to me, I mean, obviously I was in Strongloop and Strongloop had its you know, as a business had some interest in Node.js being not owned by a single like other company, but by by a much more stable thing. But as a contributor, it was clear to me for a while that we had outgrown our governance model. And our governance model was, of, of course, like didn't really exist. It was like, you know, a handful of people work on something and they all get along. Like that was the way it worked. But then at some point, you know, you're dealing with a much bigger group, like with more, commercial interest, you know, you have to find a compromise much more often. The only thing is I I didn't have any, like, practical ideas on, on how that should be done and also, like, for a long time, the BDFL at the time was not really on board with the whole idea. So this is where the foundation started for me, more or less, I think it, early 2014 it was. Just a couple people, like, you know, well-known people in the community called me and they were like yeah you should really move it into a foundation now actually like within the time frame of like two months or so different groups and those people were not talking to each other they were just you know they saw the same thing at the same time for a while the only thing is we did is like talk to everyone and make sure they got to know each other a little bit and this culminated in that meeting that denise was referring to like you know let's get everybody in a room contributors commercial interests and see what we how we can proceed with this what I'm really happy about and about iogs is that it indeed (laughs) turned out proving the majority's point which is this works much better if you put a certain set of rules on it like you know technical people make the decisions but there is always an an emergency exit where like a small group of very involved people votes on things and I think also like since then we've evolved quite a bit to like uh, you know even more well-defined governance model I'm very happy that it all worked out.
1: Yeah, well from my perspective, having having done a lot of open source now for years and years, this represents a new wave of of open source contributors. And there have been several waves, but this is a pretty big wave because open source kind of, you know, won as a methodology. But what we're seeing is mods being made based on people's experience of some of the older projects that have gotten set in their ways. And Michael and I have had endless conversations about the, the minutiae of, of how to solve this problem or that problem or this, this other problem and how different communities solve. And, and then he, you know, sort of curated the, what he, from his knowledge of the community, what he thought would work the best or what was closest to what the community was already doing. And it's been really interesting for me a lot of my colleagues that have been at it a long time haven't had opportunities to work in, in a newer project where you know some of the assumptions that we worked under are, are challenged, and, and rightly so, because the landscape has changed. A lot of the stuff we, we had to put in place is, is taken for granted now, and maybe we can look at it again and refine it. So for instance, when we got around to thinking about copyright aggregation for the new foundation, for a lot of good reasons, copyright aggregation is a good idea. And places where it hasn't happened, it's it's been pretty, pretty visibly a bad idea not to have done it. We wanted to reinstitute that, but we wanted to do it in a way that wasn't onerous for the community. And so picking up what the Linux Foundation cooked up for, for the Linux kernel itself, which was disaggregated for a really long time, but now they click through something called a DCO every time they submit a pull request. And that's That's what we do as well. So, you know, sort of adding new features to open sources is one of the things that's happened here, and it's kind of interesting. So much so that one of the functions of the foundation is to help satellite projects of Node figure out how to behave more collaboratively and kind of get healthier. So, you know, that's why it's so interesting to me that Michael did all this work to codify Exactly how it was done and, and, you know, why we do what we do. And I think as the project grows, if we have to adjust stuff, I'm sure that'll be well documented as well. So it's a pretty stellar project in that way.
3: Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, too, has to do with the fact that node applications are, are so much stuff outside of core as well as inside of core. And so as as well as we do in terms of increasing sustainability and, and everything inside of the project, if we don't have some of this persistence, the culture that is developing the ecosystem, we're not actually going to reach the, the applications and bring a lot of sustainability to the applications built.
2: So, so what do you mean? Are you investing in modules? Is that like... <laughs>
3: no, no. Well, we're not investing in modules, but we're, you know... It, what, what is working in Node and why? We, we tr- kind of examine that, talk about it, both like through conference talks and just writing articles and things like that, but just trying to get the rest of the Node.js community on board with this so that when modules become highly dependent on, that they have some idea about how to maybe add more contributors and bring some sustainability to it. Yes, okay, that makes sense. A good way to think about this right is that Node has been doubling in usage every year. So that means that, you know, two years ago when we when when we had that meeting and we were, you know, having these problems with, with, you know, a group of people in a user base that that was, you know, twenty five percent of the size that it is now. Well there are modules that have more than twenty five percent market share in the Node.js ecosystem, right? Like it's not inconceivable that they're going to have very similar problems to the ones that we were having two years ago. So writing about how we solved them and what worked and what didn't is gonna be beneficial to them.
0: This segment will be all softball questions. Softball question number 1. What does anybody want to add to the things we've already talked about that hasn't been said yet? Pieces of history or observations that you just want to make sure get aired.
1: I'd really I'd really like to put in a plug for the role of the Linux Foundation in in the in the healing of the fork of Node. I realized early on that the Linux Foundation was probably a good home for Node from the trademark holder's perspective, because they, it was important to them, they needed to feel like people understood what their concerns were and and weren't just sort of endlessly putting them down for not understanding the sort of open source mindset and or better understanding it. And the Linux Foundation is really excellent at that. Jim Zemlin is really, really good at talking new entrance into open source into a into a place of comfort like all things there are things about the Linux Foundation I would change but they were definitely the right home for this project and I was confident that we would be able to change the things we needed to to keep the focus on community building so anyway that was a really great thing we were really lucky there.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll just add to that a little bit. I think that, especially once the fork had happened, it was really important that we went to the Linux Foundation it, for no other reason that every other foundation that's an umbrella has a baked in governance model that you basically need to eat. <laughs> um, and we had just done this this huge amount of work to build out a new governance model. Um, we were very happy with it. There was no way that we were gonna be able to merge back unless we could bring a lot of that with us, right? The, the Linux Foundation's model of, of you know, treating projects as unique snowflakes they get to have their own kind of governance models associated with their foundation really worked quite well so that was really good I'd I'd also like to throw in that like Scott Hammond did a ton of work I mean that that meeting that we talked about where we first all sat down that happened like I think like a week before Scott started so you know the moment that he starts a joint he gets sort of like thrown into this problem and he had to you know very quickly like listen to everybody's concerns get up to date with it and then right away you know took that group and kind of created this advisory group out of it. So there was something like a more official capacity way for all these people to to come to the table and continue working together. And then eventually also just being instrumental in like actually starting the foundation and making all that happen.
0: Bert, how does the Strongloop acquisition fit into IBM's overall strategy? And like, how did you and, you know, everyone else at Strongloop sort of build the business into something IBM wanted to buy?
2: Well, I mean, if you... If you think about why they bought us, well, obviously, I wasn't involved in that conversation. That's something that IBM had internally before I joined. But, I mean, in hindsight, I think we can say two things. You know, we've been working with IBM for quite some time when we got acquired, like around the foundation that we discussed earlier. And I think that they noticed that we we knew where we wanted to go with this, that we had expertise, that we knew the community well. and, And certainly... A decision from IBM to do things with Node.js doesn't necessarily mean they have like everything they need to know or build right there and, and so buying Strongloop was a good step for them to get some of that stuff on board but I think the bigger story was like in Strongloop what we recognized early on is that a lot of you know serious business that were using Node.js were building APIs with Node.js I mean maybe that's not the most exciting thing you can think of. Like, you know, we all love robots and drones and, you know, chat servers for some reason. But really, it's, it's a lot of REST APIs to replace web services from, like, the early 2000s and, you know, a, a new decade with, like, more modern technologies. And we saw this in StrongLoop, and we started to build a story around that. So that has, you know, Loopback, that, which is our a framework for building APIs, but it also involved, like, performance monitoring, how do you deploy this stuff, like, basically, draw up an entire story that makes it fairly easy to people that are not super big experts in Node.js to stand up what they wanted to build. And IBM recognized this, too, and, you know, when they acquired us, they just got, like, a whole lot of stuff that they could integrate with their portfolio and, you know, make it more attractive. Uh, So that's what they did, I think, like, the, the... Most visible part is where IBM had a product called API management and they renamed it a little bit and they put loop back in there. You know, suddenly they had a solution where that actually let people build their APIs instead of just doing management and fairly generic things with it. To me, that is as far as I could, you know, reverse engineer it. That is the story.
0: I love the name strong loop. And I've never looked into or asked anyone why the name was chosen, but it just evokes for me the Homestar Runner universe with strong bad, strong mad, and strong sad. So in my mind, that's where the company got its name. Just so you know,
2: <laughs> I'll tell you half the the part loop actually relates to the to the event loop in, in Node.js. That's where we got that from. And you know, strong just means strong. Yeah, the issue when you start a new company is that you have to find a name that will be, you know, you will be able to find if you type it in Google and you cannot step on anyone's trademark. And so like, if you really try to, you'll find that a lot of things are not possible. Um. <laughs> I, I definitely buy
0: that. Okay, here's here's an open question for anyone who wants to take it, which is what do we either as individuals or as companies love about the community and what do we want to see changed?
1: Okay, well, I'll do the love bit. <laughs> I love the diversity of the community. I love that. I mean, you, when you go to a, a, a contributor conference as opposed to like an interactive where interactive is everybody comes to interactive. But there are smaller conferences that have been going on for a long time that are contributor conferences. And they're sort of known places for people to get together and, and try to get some work done. You get very, very diverse sets of people, you know, people that, are, that obviously work for big companies and, and people that are in a more fringy part of, of society. And everybody's super excited and everybody's really nice to each other, which is rare in an open source community coming in the door. There doesn't seem to be much of a, of a pissing contest going on. It's mostly people trying to help each other, which is great to see. And the demos are always really fun. So that part of it is, is excellent, I think.
2: Yeah, I I agree totally with Denise and, you know, one of the things I really like about it is that there's so many people that like run around and like build cool stuff just for the sake of building cool stuff. (laughs) I think that is, I mean, that creates, you know, an atmosphere of innovation in a community that, you know, you don't really see at many other places.
3: So my my company, the Node.js Foundation, loves the Node.js community <laughs> and does not uh, does not want to change anything. No, we actually we do want to change things. We just want to make everything continue to be awesome and better and and support it every way that we can. So I don't think that we have a position outside of that.
2: Well, I mean, I think a lot of the challenges that you have to face is just you know a growing community. I mean, in in the early years, you could throw NodeConf and you know pretty much everyone who was in involved enough could go there and but nowadays that would not scale there's like so many people and there's you know a new classes of people such as these enterprise developers that you know might have you know require a different way to reach them What i i expected just to be you know an ongoing you know growth path yeah yeah and i mean
3: because it's still doubling every year too you can't ever feel like you have a handle on it because the, the moment that you do kind of have a handle on it, or or do something that works to, to reach like a majority, or even like a, a good amount of the community. Um, it'll double again, and then you know it's it's even harder. So yeah, that's that's definitely a challenge.
0: What what are some of the ways that enterprisey companies have to be careful engaging with the community? I mean, open source is a minefield, right? Let's let's be real.
1: Well, you know, I would like to see all big companies that engage with the node community or any open source community to remember that they're 6,000-pound gorillas and that's really hard for them not to be and and work extra hard not to screw that up. We sometimes see really big companies make big investments in specific technologies because it meets some strategic need for them and, and maybe, you know, throw way more in engineers on that project than that project has ever had before. And then they kind of create their own weather system. And then maybe later they reevaluate and realize that it isn't meeting the needs that they had and so they divest. And these investments and divestments make a lot of sense for them and it's normal business. The problem is that it can really hurt a project if they've sucked up all the oxygen and there isn't anybody left once they divest that knows how to build the project or something like that. So we had a lot of conversations as we were setting up Node about this very problem and specifically about the need to make sure that there's always diversity, there's always a hegemony of organizations involved. In fact, Node has one of the toughest rules about that. About about you know how many sets of eyes, how many how many sets of organizational hands have to be involved, and in what proportion in order to make sure that the project will continue even if one or two of the contra- major contributors drop out. So, just companies need to keep their eyes on that particular problem because nobody's going to love you for coming in and and you know it's like it's like you're a roman legion and you come in and change everybody's religion and you know start have them have them doing things your way and then decide you don't want to be there anymore and now what's going to happen right so realize you're part of a whole that's bigger than just you that's the first thing
3: there's also this old uh, apache principle that you know in the github era has has become i think just kind of like a general almost taken for granted value that contributors are always contributing as individuals and are not you know representing their company necessarily and that you know these things come down to the individual and it is about people certain companies when they show up really want to like have a strategy or have like you know some kind of uh, somewhat overbearing (laughs) message or presence as a company but at the end of the day like it's the individuals like those are the people contributing it is about those people you really have to let the people that you're that you're enabling and paying to to work on the project to represent themselves and to to, to be a part of that in order to be a part of that community.
0: I I think PayPal, IBM, and all the rest have done a really great job avoiding the 800-pound gorilla problem that Denise outlined. I think it's really admirable and perhaps a model for other projects. I do have one last softball question, which is this. Michael, what are you cooking? Because it sounds delicious. Actually,
3: Anna's cooking something, so I don't know what it is. I'm um, I'm just watching it happen. <laughs> it's shrimp and something.
1: <laughs> shrimp and it's not shrimp and weenies, is it?
3: No, no. There's there's some startup that sends you food that you cook called Gobble, and so it's something from Gobble. I have no idea. What
1: oh, it is. nice.
0: All right, I guess I know what your 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 plug will be then. Speaking of plugs, let's do plugs. Let's uh, let's start with Denise.
1: I am gonna plug two things. First of all. PayPal's created a few things in addition to Kraken that are node-related, and the decision was made a little while ago to bundle all of those things under the Kraken brand and sort of revitalize our servicing of those pieces. You can look forward to hearing more from us about Kraken, and it'll be not just the framework but all of the little tools that we created and some new ones that we're creating to enhance our node experience that we hope other people will find useful. Second thing What I'm mostly working on for PayPal these days is something called InnerSource. And I'm working on it not just for PayPal, but for pretty much everybody in the world that is of a certain age and is finding that their engineering is siloed, heavily siloed, and there isn't a lot of collaboration. And they're maybe not getting increases in velocity anymore because they've squeezed that organization as hard as they can. We now think that Adopting open source methodologies inside proprietary companies is the answer for a lot of the problems that, that they're running into about scaling and continuing to to get growth out of their teams. We're actively pursuing both sharing case studies at IntersourceCommons.org and we go we do summits a few times a year where everybody gets together. We've been doing tutorials at conferences. We have a Slack channel where we share information. And so IntersourceCommons.org is where you find all this stuff out. And PayPal is being very courageous and reporting out all of its experiments and its failures and its successes and all the tools that we build. We also push into a GitHub repository for Commons, And so hopefully anybody that's listening to this and, and thinks that that might help their big older company should get involved. Come on over.
2: Bert, what would you like to plug? So I want to plug the Swift Programming language, it's gaining popularity very fast, but it's that's mostly for iOS apps, which I actually don't have much to do with. But what's interesting is that we're also working very hard on bringing that to the server, much like I mean, you know, at least somewhat comparable to bringing JavaScript to the server in the node in the form of Node.js. And what's really cool about the Swift community is like there's like this there's a great vibe around it. Like the community is much smaller, but everybody has cool ideas, they know where they want to go with it, and there's just a lot of work that needs to be done to make it viable. So, you know, if I just think about what I did in Node.js, which is Rightly libuv Swift will need something like that, maybe not exactly like that, you know, that's just open territory. So if you wanna, you know, do something in a work on a, a programming platform that's in a much earlier stage, which is open source, it has community governance, you can totally do that. Just check out Swift.
0: Cool. Maybe we'll drop a link for people to check out in the show notes. I'm sure it has been mentioned
3: on here before, but I'm going to plug Electron, actually. So, I mean, Electron, it's, I've been messing with it some more and it's, Like the annoying parts of web development are dealing with a bunch of different browsers. You don't have to do that. And also the annoying part of dealing with browsers is uh, taking all your node code and running it through some kind of giant chain to get it to run. Or like permissions and security, all not a problem. So it's really like just all of the best parts of kind of Node.js development and web development all together for desktop applications. So Electron's awesome. Yeah, that and come to Node Interactive. Everybody in the world should come to Node Interactive, Amsterdam and Austin.
0: Okay, if you are listening to this in a year that is not 2016, you might want to skip the next 30 or 40 seconds as I rattle off a bunch of events that are coming up soon. If you are listening to this in 2016 and one or more of these events strikes your interest, go to the show notes for a link. There's uh, OS and Feels in Seattle, Washington on July 22nd and 23rd. There's Node Summit in San Francisco July 27th and 28th. Web Forward, Forward J.S., I don't know, it has like five different names now, I think. July 29th in San Francisco. Cascadia Fest, August 2nd through 5th in Washington State in Semi- Someone tell me how to pronounce that. I always, I'm not even looking at it. I don't even know how to spell it. Semiamu. Yeah. All right. Thanks. I I grew up near it, so I know how to say it. Excellent. J.S. Conf Iceland in Reykjavik. August 25th and 26th. Node Interactive, which Michael just plugged. uh, Node Interactive EU in Amsterdam will be September 15th and 16th. Node Interactive North America will be in Austin, Texas, November 29th and 30th. Follow NodeUp on Twitter. Sponsor NodeUp. Email nodeup at gmail.com for more info. I want to thank our guests today for taking the time to drop their wisdom on us. Denise, thanks for coming. Hey,
1: thanks for having me again. It was really fun.
0: Bert, thanks for making time. Yeah,
2: you're welcome. It was cool to be here.
0: Michael, thanks so much for hopping in when I was floundering. No problem. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.